All right, let's uh, bow together in prayer and then we'll study the Word of God together. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to open your Word, to study your Word, and to uh, get deeply into the issues of life and uh, the most important issues of life. Guide us, Lord. Teach us by your Spirit. Thank you, as always, for the salvation that you have provided through the death of your Son on Calvary's cross. Thank you for his willingness to take our place, to bear our sin, to become sin for us, that we, by putting our faith in him, might have your righteousness. Guide us in this study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, someone told the story of the awesome power of a wife's love. And I'd like to share that with you this morning. A very old man lay dying in his bed in death's doorway. He suddenly smelled the aroma of his favorite chocolate chip cookie wafting up the stairs. He gathered his remaining strength and lifted himself from the bed. Leaning against the wall, laboriously, he slowly made his way out of the bedroom and with even greater effort forced himself down the stairs, gripping the railing with both hands. With labored breath, he leaned against the doorframe, gazing into the kitchen, where it not for death's agony, he would have thought himself already in heaven. There, spread out on newspapers on the kitchen table, were literally hundreds of his favorite chocolate chip cookies. Was it heaven? Or was it one final act of heroic love from his devoted wife, seeing to it that he left this world a happy man? Mustering one great final effort, he threw himself toward the table. The aged and withered hand, shaking, made its way to a cookie at the edge of the table when he was suddenly smacked with a spatula by his wife. Stay out of those, she said, there for the funeral. <laughs> An act of love. <laughs> God's desire for marriage, as we've tried to see over the last couple of weeks, is oneness. And best described in the word oneness. But because of the fall, because of our bent toward selfishness that came in when we acquired the sin nature, when we sinned with Adam and Eve, it has made oneness difficult. It has made oneness, not just in the marriage relationship, but oneness in all relationships, a difficult thing. Our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our sin nature gets in the way, as Steve taught last week. One writer, tongue-in-cheek, I think, said this, in every marriage more than a week old, there are grounds for divorce. The trick is to find and continue to find grounds for marriage. What we'd like to do this morning is talk about some threats to oneness, particularly the, the threat that is, accompanies the sexual relationship. One, another writer, in fact, he's a, a 17th, 18th century mystic, said this, 
In order to be satisfied, even with the best people, we need to be content with little and to bear a great deal. Even the most perfect people have many imperfections. We ourselves have as great defects. Our faults combined with theirs make mutual toleration a difficult matter. Years ago, I tried to put together for myself a summary of the important things that the Bible teaches about marriage. And the very first, I call them Joe's Maxims for Marriage. You know, I had to find a, a alliteration, right? The first one, and I was serious about this, it wasn't a joke. The first one is this, because of a flawed human nature, there are no compatible couples. Every relationship is made difficult. Every relationship is a challenge, whether we're talking about friendship or whether we're talking about family or whether we're talking about marriage. They've all been made difficult because we turned our backs on God with Adam and Eve in the garden and said we don't want God's way. We want our way. We'll do it our way. The essence of the fall in Genesis 3 was separation. Remember, God said to Adam, in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. You will surely die. Now, he didn't immediately die physically when he ate of the fruit. Eve didn't immediately die physical when, physically when they ate of the fruit. But the process of physical death began in their lives. Because death is separation. Physical death is the separation of the bodily body from the spirit. Spiritual death is separation from God. And the process of death began in their lives. The process of separation, which is what death is, was now brought into the world and brought into our relationships. That's the bad news. The good news is that God, right from the beginning, right from Genesis 3.15, promises a redeemer through the line of the woman. Someone who would die for our sins. Someone we could turn to for life. Well, we're still in the flesh. We still have a sin nature, and that sin nature tends towards selfishness and separation. We looked at the definition of marriage a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 2.24. God speaks and defines marriage as a monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong union. As Dr. Alan Ross said, the implication is that marriage involves one male and one female becoming one flesh. Another writer said, here at the start of the human race, at the outset of God's word, is ordained the divine origin and sanctity of marriage. One man, one woman, one flesh. The one flesh relationship of marriage illustrates the oneness that God wants to see built in the lives of two people who come together in marriage. Well, the Bible talks about four purposes of marriage, four purposes, four reasons God established marriage. The first is 
suitable face-to-face companionship. Remember when Adam named all of the animals, he found that there was none that corresponded to him. There was none with whom he could have suitable face-to-face relationship, companionship. And so the first goal of marriage is suitable face-to-face companionship. The second purpose of marriage biblically is that marriage provides the God-given right to enjoy sex and to have children. Genesis 1.28 tells us that sexual love isn't only for procreation, but the bearing of children is an important part of the marriage union. Another purpose of marriage is to encourage self-control, to control immorality, to promote morality. And the fourth purpose of marriage is that marriage is an illustration of the loving and intimate relationship between Christ and his church. There are four basic assumptions about how you and I can fulfill God's goal of oneness in marriage. Number one, our mate is God's provision for our aloneness needs. Our mate is God's provision for our aloneness needs. Secondly, as Steve was saying last week, God's only agent for change is unconditional love. God's only agent for change is unconditional love. Thirdly, God uses our mate's weaknesses to perfect our character You know, we think our mate's weaknesses are to make us mad, (laughs) right? (laughs) But they're not. They're meant to perfect our character, and God uses our mate to perfect our character. The fourth basic assumption is that our mate's weakness is an opportunity for us to be needed. Our mate's weakness is an opportunity for us to be needed. Well, one of the great threats to the oneness that God desires for us in marriage is conflict over the sexual relationship. Paul deals with that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Remember, these are not his ideas. These are uh, what he wrote, what he had written. Uh, What we find in the Word of God is what the Holy Spirit has inspired human writers to write. So this is an important issue to God. Uh, Look at chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians with me where we read this, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry, but since there is so much immorality... By the way, all Paul is saying there is that uh, he thinks that because of the issues that they were facing at that time, uh, and he'll say more about that later in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, that it would be better to be celibate. Now, not everybody is given the gift of celibacy. It is a gift from God. And not everybody is given that gift. If a person has been given the gift of celibacy, uh, they should pursue that and not pursue a marriage relationship. If a person does not have the gift of celibacy and desires deeply a marriage relationship, they should pursue that. But Paul is saying that for the issues that they are facing at that time, he, he feels that to be unmarried allows a person to give and devote more of themselves and more of their time and more of their life to God. For the matters you wrote me about, apparently they had some questions about marriage and about the 
the uh, relationship of sex and marriage. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry, but since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And by the way, that would be astounding to a Greek or Hebrew or Romans man's ears in those days. You and I can't understand. A couple of weeks ago, Chris was talking about roles in marriage. That applies there, and it applies here in the sexual relationship. You can't imagine what it was like when Paul wrote these words, and Roman men, Greek men, Hebrew men read these words, because in the cultures of that day, the Roman culture, Hebrew culture, Greek culture of that day, the man was king. In fact, in those cultures, his wife was nothing but his property. So can you imagine what it would be like when these Corinthians would read these words where Paul is saying the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife? The first thought for a man in that day was, what are you talking about? My duty to her, her duty is to me. You see how the Bible turns things upside down? to straighten them out. Paul is saying that the husband has a marital duty to his wife. That was, that was an astounding statement for that day. And likewise, the wife to her husband, but a wife also has a marital duty. Now at that point, the guy would be saying, yeah, I agree with that. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. And again, there would be agreement. But then Paul goes on to say, in the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. There, the culture of that day, the men of that day would say, whoa, wait a minute, what do you mean? He is saying there are mutual responsibilities and there's a mutual duty in the area of the sexual relationship in marriage. Paul goes on to say in verse 5, Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time. In other words, don't deprive your partner. You know, it's so easy to use sex as a weapon in marriage, isn't it? It's so easy to use sex as a weapon in marriage. Paul's saying don't do it. You do it at your own peril. If you use sex as a weapon in your marriage, withholding sex from your partner, you are doing it at your own peril. Why is that? He said you should only do it for a short time and uh, by mutual consent so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. In other words, there has to be a spiritual reason for that. It has to be a short time and it has to be by mutual consent. Then come together again. Now this is the important thing, and you'll want to underline this in your Bible. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, this is one area, the sexual relationship in marriage, the oneness of sex in marriage, is one area that Satan's just waiting and going like this. I can't wait till they get at odds with each other over the sexual relationship. It's one of the most powerful relationships. And Satan's just waiting to use it to destroy Christian marriages. 
By the way, it's one of two times in Scripture that it says that Satan uses issues to divide people. In this case, Satan uses the sexual relationship to divide husband from wife, wife from husband. In Ephesians chapter 4, Satan uses anger to establish a beachhead in your life and my life when we don't care, take care of the anger in our lives. So, God designed the physical relationship in marriage to build intimacy. Instead, it often builds distance. In the passage we just read, 1 Corinthians 7, 1-7, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, warns married couples to not withhold their bodies from each other except in rare circumstances and then only for prayer. To violate this instruction is to invite Satan's destructive work into a marriage. Fourthly, a couple's response to each other and growth in this area can be hindered by several things. Can be hindered by not understanding the different motivations that men and women have in sex. Exhaustion can come into the picture. Addictions, especially to pornography, can come into the situation. Mental adultery can come into the situation. Let me suggest some places, uh, some resources for this whole issue of biblical, a biblical view of sex and marriage. Uh, Bob Merritt has written a book entitled Seven Simple Choices for a Better Tomorrow. That's a good resource. Douglas Rosenau has written A Celebration of Sex, A Guide to Enjoying God's Gift of Sexual Intimacy. From a woman's point of view, Linda Dillow and Lorraine Pintus have written Intimate Issues. Clifford and Joyce Penner have written The Gift of Sex and 50 Ways to Have Fun, Fantastic Sex. Dr. Ed Wheat has written Intended for Pleasure. These are all excellent resources to understand the biblical view of marriage. So four, five things here. Number one, God invented sex. God invented sex. It wasn't done in a corner somewhere by some dirty old men. It was invented by God. It was desirable. It was invented by God for the continuance of the human race. It was invented by God for the pleasure of the married partners. Number two, sex is good. It's a part of God's good creation. Song of Solomon tells us that. Proverbs chapter 5 tells us that. Thirdly, the sexual relationship has been corrupted by the fall, just as every other part of our relationships with each other has been affected by the fall. And never more intensely than in the marriage relationship. All relationships have been wrecked by the fall. The marriage relationship especially. Especially. So sexual relationship has been corrupted by the fall. 
So God invented sex. Number two, sex is good. Number three, the sexual relationship has been corrupted by the fall. Number four, the sexual relationship is meant for married couples only. In a monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong union. Number five, sex, and this is follows up on number four, sex is wrong outside of marriage. Sex is wrong outside of marriage. If you want to read more about that, what the scripture has to say, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 20, expands upon that. Well, marriage is God's answer to immorality, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, to summarize what we just read and studied, marriage is an answer to immorality. The husband and wife have a duty to meet each other's needs. Our bodies are as much our mates as our own. The only reason to deprive our mate of sex is by mutual consent. Not, not to press a point, not to argue with each other, not to use as a battleground to get our way, but by mutual consent for a time, for a spiritual purpose. When it isn't done properly, it leads to lack of self-control, which Satan will take advantage of. Now, I don't have time. There's so many passages. We could spend several weeks on this, and some years ago, I think it was 2013, I did. Uh, but look up Proverbs 5, 15 to 23, where it talks about the beauty of the sexual relationship in marriage. Look up at Proverbs 6, 20 to 35. Uh, read the song, the book Song of Solomon. In addition to procreation, prevention of immorality, recreation, and release, God designed sex to be the most intimate form of communication. It's the most intimate form of communication. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, the inventor of the human machine was telling us that its two halves the male and female were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on the sexual level, but total, totally combined. The monstrosity, Lewis says, of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union from all other, all other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make, it, make up the total union. Sex is the most intimate form of communication. Um, there's another book entitled His Need, Her Needs by Dr. Willard Harley. And he, his first law of marriage is this. When it comes to sex and affection, you can't have one without the other. And his first correlation is the typical wife doesn't understand her husband's deep need for sex any more than the typical husband understands his, wife deep, his wife deep, wife's deep need for affection. Harley says that affection and appreciation issues are at the heart of many conflicts for women. It is often un, the unspoken drive 
that underlies conflicts for her, marital conflicts for her, it can produce bitterness and resentment. Harley says, I love you and you are special are powerful words for a woman. Harley also said, sexual issues are at the heart of many conflicts for men. The sex drive is a very potent force for a man. It is the often unspoken drive that underlines many marital conflicts for him can produce jealousy and resentment. He feels like you don't care about his needs. You don't understand him. It causes anger and bitterness and sometimes even rage that a man feels that he's being neglected in this way. Harley goes on to say, men consider lack of sexual attention by their wives as rejection and apathy toward their deepest needs in the same way that women consider lack of affection and tenderness as rejection and apathy toward their deepest needs. He says this, he concludes this, without overly romanticizing sex for women or eroticizing it for men, women appreciate and respond more readily to romance, kindness, and affection as a prelude to sex. Men are ready without a romantic prelude, but they want the total involvement of their wives, not just a cooperative body. One of the biggest threats to the oneness of the marriage relationship is that of problems, issues in the sexual relationship in marriage. Let me quickly, I didn't want to stop there and I just have about five more minutes. Uh, I wanted to talk about a couple other threats to oneness. Uh, there's an article that I read, an internet article uh, at the Probe Ministries website, which is a really great ministry. Uh, uh, an article written by Sue Bolin entitled Trash Your Marriage in 8 Easy Steps. Would you like to know how to trash your marriage in 8 Easy Steps? Number one, be selfish. Be selfish. Always insist on having things your own way. If there's only enough money in the budget for what one of you wants, make sure you get it. Make demands instead of requests. Number two, pick at each other. The second step is to pick at each other. If you know that something annoys your spouse, be sure to do it often. Number three, let the kids be more important. This is one that often comes up. A third step to trashing your marriage, she says, is to let the kids become more important than your spouse. Moms, he says, she says, make your husband feel left out of the intimate, secret relationship between you and your baby. Dads, invest all your energies into making your child succeed at what he's good at or what you want him to be good at. Let the kids and other priorities crowd out your alone time. Your alone together time. Number four, show disrespect. Show disrespect for your spouse, especially in public. Complain about your spouse to your friends. It's even more powerful if you do it in front of your spouse. Obviously tongue-in-cheek, right? Number five, refuse to meet emotional needs. Number six, 
treat your friends better than your spouse. By the way, you can look up the article. I'm sure it's still on the internet. Number seven has two parts. To the man, be a pansy. Step number seven for trashing your marriage has two parts. Husband, be a pansy. Retreat into the safety of passivity. Refuse to take initiative or responsibility in making plans or suggestions. That way, when things go wrong, you can say, don't blame me. It's not my fault. To the wife, you want to trash your marriage, be his mother. Be a mother to your husband. When people ask how many children you have, say things like two or three if you count my husband. Tell him to wear a coat when it's cold, take an umbrella when it's raining because he can't figure it out in his own. Number eight, when you're angry, blow up. Inflicting pain is the most important thing. Well, that's just a quick... Another threat to oneness is the inability to cope with trials and wrong expectation. One writer said that somehow Christians and Christian marriages will not experience trials. So many young couples are unprepared for the trials that will come into their lives. Lastly, Communication threats to marriage include escalation that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, escalating small arguments into large ones, invalidation where you subtly or overtly put down your mate's thoughts, feelings, or character, negative interpretations where you're constantly making negative assumptions about your mate's actions, or withdrawal and avoidance of unwilling to openly and honestly deal with uncomfortable issues. Well, let me close with this and I'll turn it over to Frank. Several writers have mentioned the importance of commitment. In Patrick Morley's book, The Man in the Mirror, he says this, for a marriage to survive today, a man and his wife must be at least equally committed to the institution of marriage as they are committed to each other as individuals. If the institution of marriage itself is not highly regarded value, then sooner or later when part, one partner starts to feel unloving thoughts, there's no, no moral framework to motivate working through the problem. In Roger and Tirabasi's book that Steve mentioned last week, How to Live With Them Since You Can't Live Without Them, they said, say this, never quit. Never quit. Divorce should never be an option. You should not even ever use the D word in your marriage. It's normal, they say, to want to quit when we get discouraged or feel overwhelmed or when a situation feels hopeless. Every relationship will have experience that yield discouraging, hopeless feelings. Admittedly, some relationships will have more difficulty than others. Therefore, it's important to acknowledge that marriage is difficult and to make decisions that will help us succeed. We believe that making a non-negotiable decision to never divorce is essentially to keeping at bay the temptations that inevitably try to threaten all marriages. 
uh, some of my first really close friends when I became a believer in Jesus Christ uh, was a married couple, Chuck and Joanne were their names. And they used to kiddingly, I, at least I hope it was kiddingly, they used to kiddingly say that they have committed to each other that they will never divorce, they will simply kill each other. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I like the first commitment. Uh, let, me, let me say two, two quick things. The Tirabasis suggest that we stay connected to each other. They decided that they would talk when they didn't want to. They would make love when they didn't necessarily feel like it. They would work when they would rather pray, a play, and they would go to church when they felt like sleeping in. Stu Weber in A Tender Warrior, and this is it. Frank, you're up. Uh, Lynn said this, Linda and I, his wife, Linda and I married just over a quarter century ago, and we had not a whit of an inkling of what those 25 plus years would bring. How could we possibly have imagined what the winds of the years would blow into our lives? When we stood together at the altar that sun, sunny afternoon, we couldn't have guessed a tenth of it, but we didn't need to. We made a promise. We recited a vow. Out of the whole world, we chose each other, and the power of that choice, that promise, has kept us. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many reasons, so many things that happen to come into our lives and to try to separate us from each other, uh, even just in friendship, but especially in the marriage relationship. We pray, Lord, that we might have a commitment to your way that is unbreakable. In Jesus' name, amen.